I'm gonna Anna, do you wanna do the intro? I feel like I always do it. <laughs> <clears throat> and I'm gonna try and get it from the first time I like Georgia. Hello, and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I get to edit this one, so I get to edit you saying that I can't get it right and then immediately getting it wrong. Hello, and welcome to Not Safe for Publication a podcast about the light side of humanities research. I'm Anna. I'm Georgia. And with us this week is Oishi. Oishi, welcome. Hello. Thank you for coming to join us on the show. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be here at Manchester? Okay. Thank you for this opportunity. I think it's uh, great to be able to have conversations that I usually have in my head while on, I'm on the bus commute and just have it out in the open like a normal person. Uh, I am, uh, so I came to Manchester in 2017. Uh, I was doing my master's in Paris where uh, one of our course instructors was a professor at Manchester. And he mentioned, like, at the end of the course, he sent a really nice email to everyone that, oh, if you are considering, like, whatever career you are pursuing, good wishes and everything. And I had told him, like, oh, I'm interested in an academic career. I might want to do a PhD. So he was kind enough to say, if you're thinking of PhD, think of Manchester. So when the application time came, I contacted him and he helped me with uh, finalizing my proposal and applying to the university. Um, and yes, that's how I came here. Oh, it's such a good experience when you have a contact that you already know at the institution, especially yes. if it's someone nice. Yes, and uh, he was kind enough to, like, uh, my uh, current supervisor, basically. But uh, once, even when I had got the offer, he kept... Like we had sessions um, in uh, Paris where like between his classes, we would sit in a cafe for an hour and he would say how challenging a PhD is. So he calls that time like I really wanted to test you for your motivation for the PhD. I didn't pay much attention to that, <laughs> but that was like good counseling and good support, which mm -hmm. I ignored. Uh, but yes, <laughs> it was a good way of getting in. Yeah, I sort of, even though I can see how that would sort of be a bit alarming i think there is something very nice about someone taking the time to to try and ready you for it because it's a yes a, it is not like anything else <laughs> you will ever do it's not like studying it's not like having a job it's sort of like both and sort of neither that's that's actually very accurate like <laughs> the most accurate description of the phd i have heard but yes so that's how i came here do you feel like that supervisory relationship helped you with some of your kind of anxieties when first starting in here? Oh, yes. I think uh, as an international student, especially, uh, I remember the first three months almost or four, both my supervisors would ask more questions about well-being and have you settled in and have you found your supermarket and things like that rather than harp on about like where's your research question what's the 300 word proposal that we have been asking for so uh, on the one hand i think uh, anytime i looked at some of my peers who were pretty much on track from day one 
on their PhD and I felt, oh, I'm not working more professionally or something. I did find that support very useful and very healthy in a way to be able to talk to my supervisors like that. So, yes, that was that that is very nice. I mean, this is really only my perspective, but I I think it's one that quite a few people share is that actually that well-being part is the most important thing. Working professionally, whatever that means, <laughs> is is one thing, but it's much more important in my eyes to work healthily, to be actually taking care of yourself while you're doing your work, taking care of people around you if you have yeah. the chance to do that because it doesn't matter how professional you are if you are on route for a breakdown your work's not getting done <laughs> that's true i suppose yeah like it it helped me like uh, so in my moment of like uh, sometimes i've written in my diary that you know when i get to a position of mentorship or something like this is something i would like to emulate this kind of a uh, nice supervisory relationship mm. oh that's yeah. a a wonderful way to feel about your supervisor as well, <laughs> to see them as someone who's aspirational in the way they they handle their role. I think that's that's really nice. I uh, bet they'd love to hear that. <laughs> if they ever hear that. <laughs> uh, I don't think yeah. they have time for all of this. But Yeah, fair enough. Um, Maybe write it in a Christmas card or something. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about your project? So my project is, which is where I found the whole idea of not safe for publication really exciting. Uh, I do research on defense procurement and everybody seems to have very specific ideas of what my research is. Whereas I have spent the last more than two years, nearly three years now, trying to figure out what is so special about defense, why why do I always get a reaction from people when I say I'm doing defense research? And it ranges from like people immediately assume it's something to do with armament or disarmament on both sides, uh, whether it's something very right wing in terms of like, oh, is it about the defense, the military industrial complex and things like that. So, yeah, my project is basically trying to rationalize what is distinctive about defense research or defense policy, defense practice. And you're doing this research within the business school, so presumably there's a sort of a business angle on yeah. this. There should be. <laughs> uh, but in a way, the business school seems to be a place where... Uh, like somebody once described to me that the business school is, it cross-subsidizes social science research. So we have lots of MBA students and they pay a lot to get their MBA degrees. But ultimately that money goes into supporting researchers around a variety of topics in social science. So it is kind of a broad umbrella under which uh, the thing is there. Yes, I have. I suppose there are management perspectives that come in and... Uh, I use institutional theory, which seems to be a more management perspective of looking at things. But yeah, I, I, I studied economics before, so mm. I had very fixed ideas of what a business school is like, and I hated it. But uh, no, at here it's, it's a broad umbrella under which we are studying policy and public activities. See, I've <laughs> recently been listening to a podcast on China because that's my area of interest, okay. but actually quite a lot of, when people talked about defense policies, people were talking about um, food sustainability. Who is able to produce food and, and you know, kind of in being independent in terms of being able to provide your citizens with food and stuff like that. And that's, that's something that I found really interesting because there was this case in America 
where they basically it was a case of commercial espionage where uh, two people were accused by FBI for trying to steal a particular type of hybrid crop trying to take it to China I don't I don't think I'm not sure what the outcome of the case was basically this whole story of FBI there were multiple FBI agents tracking those guys down following them kind of finding them in the fields capturing them which is a very interesting and somewhat funny image um which which I found, yeah. an interesting assignment for the FBI yeah yeah certainly <laughs> like kind of looking for people who are trying who are essentially scientists trying to get a particular crop and it's just that one yeah. i found very interesting so you mentioned that people assume it's it's armaments. Yeah. On the whole, would you say that's the biggest misconception about your work? No, in fact a lot of study and a lot of uh, defense researchers talk about armaments and uh, disarmament basically. So it, the subject is like defense economics is described as defense and peace economics because the mm. idea is ultimately if we can all stop buying weapons, then we'll have world peace. but defense is about as you said self sufficiency it's uh, trying to negotiate what would be the balance between a globalized world and you know as we are progressing as societies where we are sharing more and collaborating more but still being fearful of what's uh, you know what can what should be protected and what should be ours versus can what strategic and you know what others can harm us with if they get hold of that technology are you using particular case studies are you looking at particular nations yes so i wanted to look at india so that i could do my case studies when <laughs> or my research when i was home but no i'm looking at uh, uk uh, defense procurement i have my case studies are the procurement of the aircraft carrier and the procure and the stories around you know the procurement basically so it's the aircraft carrier and the armored vehicles mm-hmm. uh, i'm comparing it with the cases of civilian procurement or like major civilian projects so my civilian projects are the procurement of trains uh, by the department for transport and by comparing these projects i'm trying to find out where they show some sort of similarities in the kind of dialogues people have about these projects and where there are clear differences which emerge when uh, we talk about these projects that is how it links to my research question of whether defense is isolated unique different people's perceptions about these projects and what differences if any do you see between these different types of procurement so far very little mm. which is worrying me <laughs> because they are like all of them are dramatically different projects uh, it's a train an armored vehicle and uh, a huge ship it's, and that's where i think i find institutional theory almost supports you when everything else is falling apart mm. because in institutional theory the idea is we are more similar than we are different so i kind of like that idea and uh, the differences i suppose in defense there is always that bit of smoke screen around it so when i go through a parliamentary committee here a select committee hearing there would be asterisk saying like this has been uh, you know this is a private discussion not for public disclosure but uh, no a lot of information is out there and uh, 
I can talk about the similarities <laughs> uh, more than I can talk about the differences right now. I mean, that is interesting in and of itself. If the starting place is an assumption is that something is different and it's not as different as you think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think, but here again, I'm trying to uh, rationalize my PhD in a mm. way or, uh, you know, put the thesis into words. Because in terms of similarities, what I see is uh, there are concerns about jobs. Mm. And you would think that's very natural for defense because these are strategic industries and you want to be able to produce your own ships and armored vehicles uh, because, uh, you know, uh, but then some of the armored vehicles are being produced in Spain, like the first batch of them. And for the trains, so I was looking at the Thameslink project and there the trains are being made in Germany and when the contract was announced, there was a lot of human cry about, uh, you know, we are losing the last train-making factory in the UK and trains are no longer being produced in the UK. So I felt these eco kind of the same concerns about about industrial skills, about jobs, mm. which you would think would be, you wouldn't be surprised to see it in defense, but you also see it in something like trains. Mm. So that's what I was thinking of when you said that you were using trains as your sort of civilian yeah. equivalent, because I do remember there being some conversations about British rolling stock all being yeah. even like leased from other countries that uh, it's not just manufactured elsewhere, but that we kind of rent our rolling stock from yeah. Germany and they could in theory take it back. Yeah. It's obviously probably not something that you'd want to do with defence. Yes, but then the armored vehicles are being made in Spain. So mm. again, like Spain is a friendly nation in the same way Germany is a friendly nation, right? So surely the same thinking should apply in mm. both, but it doesn't seem to. And that's where I'm getting confused. Yeah, oh, it's a. it sounds like it's really interesting. Yes, if hard to sort of articulate, but I imagine that a lot of the process... Certainly in my experience, a lot of the process of the PhD is taking what you sort of know and turning it into something that you can really evidence and explain to someone else. Or make sense of, I suppose. Because yeah. right now, uh, whatever information I have, it just doesn't make sense to me. And it's quite refreshing to talk to someone who's comfortable saying that. <laughs> I think, well, all of us have times like that, right? Yeah. And... Especially, you know, you come into a panel and they ask you, so what kind of scholar are you? Are you coming at this from a political or sociological or cultural perspective? And you're just like, I don't know. Yeah, like, I'll do whatever you want me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. whatever will make me pass. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, because in my first year I was uh, talking about, I, I was attending conferences related to innovation policy and looking at... Uh, all these procurement projects as they are complex technologies and buying them is difficult. So this whole idea of uh, technological complexity. In my second year, I got lost a lot, but I went for like some public procurement conferences and there I was clearly told like, no, no, defense is very different. Uh, get out. Uh, mm. And uh, yeah, and now in my third year, it seems to be I'm trying to breach into like public policy debates about uh, how we make policy and who makes the policy and political actors. Mm, so yeah. I don't know, like the project seems to keep changing <laughs> over time. Uh, 
but that's that's something i enjoy about my phd it's hard to define very hard to talk about if you want to just cancel this whole podcast <laughs> i'm okay no <laughs> but, <laughs> you're here and we're getting an episode out of you uh, yeah like we can do this all over again i'm so sorry for wasting your time <laughs> uh, but no what i enjoy is there are these different questions and different methods that i have tried and all in all i find that aspect of my phd journey satisfying and happy Mm. In uh. fact, I really like to hear people talk about their PhD as a journey. I think, <laughs> well, it's. I feel like there's a certain way in which we use the term my PhD. And a lot of it, us will use it to literally mean the sort of 80,000 word document that we will produce, what we might more accurately call our thesis. Or we might talk about my PhD as kind of like what it means to kind of you know, come in and be here every day and do the things that we do. But actually, it's a three-year process of turning into a different person. Yeah. It's a, a process where we have to probably break ourselves down to the sort of <laughs> barest parts and build ourselves back up to something hopefully stronger and more confident than we were before. But it's, it is a journey. And maybe the fact that you know, what you're doing is so confusing and in between all of those fields where you don't really feel like you fit in is what makes what you're doing unique and exciting and innovative mm. and something that people will actually want to read and something that will appeal to a broad audience. Um, because clearly there is, you know, ideas of technological advancement and clearly like IPs and copyrights are particularly important when it comes to defense technologies. And, you know, in this way, probably trains are quite, can be quite similar in, in bigger countries to defence projects. Because I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking particularly, you know, with me being Russian and coming from like a bigger country where being able to move the forces within the country is such an important thing where, you know, the railway becomes a very important military industrial complex as well as a civilian industrial complex mm, yeah. i'd never thought of that that way but because i'm from a small country <laughs> you are from a small country uh, but then uh, like and this is where uh, my reasoning gets into a slippery slope is wouldn't a lot of things then become strategically important so mm. would we should we be then discussing every like should every government department then be subject to the same levels of or shouldn't they pretend to be as secretive as defense because currently the problem is that defense seems to get away with a lot of things mm. yeah. and i was hoping and this is i think the struggle the classic struggle of people who come to study defense with the hope of world peace and then find themselves <laughs> not contributing to it at all. Uh, because initially, like, my initial question was, uh, why does defense get away with a lot of things uh, by quoting, like, this is strategically important or this is about security and not get subject to the same levels of scrutiny, same amount of people running after them, like, what are mm. you doing? Where is all this money going? Why is it? Why is everything so ineffic inefficient? But now it seems I am reasoning that every industry is very strategic, so <laughs> let's be cautious about our trains, our health service, our... Uh, yeah, but, but, yeah, no. If, if you're coming from a position of 
not all of it is that different and all of those industries continue to function and possibly trying to improve in situations where they are not necessarily this secretive. Yeah. Aren't you at the same time building an argument that, that defence shouldn't be that different? Yeah, they could. Yeah. Are different. And, and it seems, just from what you were saying before about when you started going to private procurement conferences, that people were saying, no, no, defence is different. Yeah. That was their perception from inside the industry. Kind of seems like what you're finding is is an important finding then because you can go back and present and be like, well, everyone told me the defence was different and that my research didn't have a place here and here it is proving that it's, you know, the same in a lot of ways and that either the rigours that we apply to our own industries we should be applying to defence or that people should be able to leave us alone and let us get on with it <laughs> the way that they do with uh, defence uh. procurement. Uh, no, so I have uh, like uh, compartmentalized my research question into like looking at academic literature, looking at uh, practice uh, in terms of uh, these projects and what uh, the practitioners and political actors are doing and looking at public perception. Mm. So on the theory side, I found, yes, academics um, do compartmentalize between looking at different sorts of procurement, like that conference where I wasn't f made to feel welcome. With the practice, I'm still analyzing the data. I don't know what the results would be, uh, whether it will indicate similarity or difference. With public perception, interestingly, uh, it does seem uh, that people... Uh, so I plotted the sentiment that uh, people expressed... Or, okay, now, I proxied public sentiment as newspaper articles and the sentiment expressed in newspaper articles, so whether they're praising the project or they're criticizing the project. And the defense and civilian projects seem to follow the same sort of like almost a parallel sentiment plot over time. So there I felt like, yeah, when, the, when people hate pr big projects, they seem to hate big projects equally. It's not like they treat the military as something special or exceptional. Like so a time of economic crisis or change in government, sentiment dips for both mm. projects. Mm. So yeah, so yeah, those three different. Yeah, I was thinking about also the debate about um, steel when when there was this huge and and steel is essentially a very neutral thing. You can <laughs> use it to make lots of different things, an endless number of different things, and it can be important for your defense, but it can also be important for just any sort of industry. And that's you know, and it was such a polarizing debate when people were talking about steel. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and so the sort of the propping up of, of that particular industry. Whenever I have this experience of talking to someone from a discipline so far outside my own, I just get so overwhelmed with, like, the diversity of the humanities <laughs> community, like, just in what we're interested in and, and what we want to find out and the questions we're trying to answer. And then at the same time, the things that we do the same. So I'm a historian, and I use, like, press articles to proxy public opinion like <laughs> i you know will go through a database of like six thousand articles that mention a particular subject and kind of be like okay this many were positive and, and we're doing something quite similar but for really different ends i think that's the thing that makes humanities a community <laughs> yeah and, and that, that's i think that's something that is very exciting and that that we share those tools how are you uh, classifying your newspaper articles? Because I thought of using computer and 
my supervisors are ambivalent. <laughs> so I, this is very untechnical. Um, but if I'm doing something like that, I, so I start by finding them all on an archive, get my sample, and then I open an Excel document and I will have like an indexing system that I'll use. Uh, so like author, date, publication, and then the thing that I want to know about it. So very often I want to know if the article had a photograph. So I'll just have a yes, no column for that. And then say like positive or negative on particular subject and just a yes, no, okay. like a, a binary choice for that. So that I end okay. up with something that I can, I can filter the spreadsheet to show me just the negative ones with photographs. Okay. It's very boring indeed, but it works quite well for processing a large number of things. No, yeah, no, no, because I have uh, one of the best resources I think uh, this university has is the the humanities uh, workshops, community, research mm. updates, methods mm. at Manchester and things like that. Um, and there I found, yeah, other people also using newspapers and how they mm. analyze things. Sometimes I disagree with what is presented mm. and I'm like, oh, that's too much manual work happening. Mm. Mm. Yeah, my a lot of my research methods are quite manual work intensive. Um, I have also used Envivo, yeah. which okay. is kind of a more complicated way of doing what I do in Excel. So I, I like it, but I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. <laughs> like... Uh, you know, negative advertisement for any yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a very good bit of software. I'm probably not <laughs> its ideal customer. <laughs> uh, okay. I tried uh, using R. So, like, the reason mm. my PhD got derailed was because I got really interested in computer science methods and this whole idea of machine learning and having computers read the text. And I was like, this is great. So, I don't have to read all these thousands of articles. Some, you know, the machine can read it but then the machine was really struggling to read things and then I realized how intelligent we human beings are like when you try to teach a machine English like it gets it wrong all the time yeah uh, most of the time and uh, things yeah, machine like that. learning is not there yet I think it's going to be a useful tool for researchers yeah, but that's 15 when, years younger than us. <laughs> but that's when the machines learn how to read. Like, yeah. you know, we need to teach them how to read. And some people, so in the business school, some people in marketing uh, use machine learning mm. because uh, computers are great at reading product reviews and mm. uh, anticipating what is the next thing you're going to buy. Mm. Uh, AI for, uh, yeah, that's the part of business school I do like but, uh, <laughs> yeah that's that's the kind of creepy stuff isn't yeah. it where they're predicting our behavior oh yes but it's it's really annoying how accurate sometimes it i is. know i feel very embarrassed when it just completely gets me right on something i'm like oh yeah but then my, so in my second year i spent a lot of time trying to get the computer to understand or correctly categorize a newspaper article or a statement made in parliament as positive or negative, used sentiment analysis packages developed by other people. Where computers would get it wrong is uh, many times newspaper articles are written uh, with sarcasm, mm. irony, and even parliamentary exchanges like people would make these sarcastic remarks about the competence of the government and all and the news and like the machine would not understand those yeah so 
I was like, but yeah, but no, it's like at one point, I hope like, you know, as more political scientists use these tools, mm. maybe. Yeah, I think there's these tools represent a sort of interesting future. But I think that I what you said is is right, like in terms of the capacity of the human brain. We're always going to be one step ahead, just in ter- certainly in terms of reading other people, right? <laughs> of knowing when someone's being sarcastic or recognizing a joke or anything like it's I think it's going to be a while before a computer can do that. I think these tools will be incredibly important when it comes to and I think I think this is not as far away as some people think, but when we've got like historians of social media, mm. My yeah. dream job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when when you've got, you know, historians and sociologists who are looking not at just kind of particular communities, but looking at social media as a whole nationwide, worldwide, and to be able to analyse that, obviously that's ridiculous amount of text. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 we will have to use machines to read this because PhDs on that would last <laughs> decades if we don't. But we, but those machines would absolutely be able to need to be able to interpret tone and sarcasm. Imagine doing and typos. Re- yeah, imagine doing research on like, like quantitative research on social media posts. If you can't identify sarcasm, it would be. I think it would Depends be made quite difficult. Depends on the country difficult. you are looking at, I suppose. Yeah. Because I think part of the reason why, like, I was having problems is, and when I told this to my supervisors, they were like, oh, so you mean the, the you know, the machine is American. Because, <laughs> uh, it's like, irony is a British thing or something like that. Mm, uh, sure. Yeah. We'd, I'm sure we'd like to tell ourselves that. <laughs> I think most of my experiences with reading texts is that irony is region specific, like what type of irony there is, or the, what type of sarcasm there is. But it's the same as every community has its own inside jokes. But mm. every community has inside jokes, yeah. right? Every community has some form of inside memes and some things, mm. forms of it going on. Yeah, and I think that is where, uh, but now we are going into a territory that I am not an expert in, uh, uh, of, you know, like, would we have machines for, or would we then have software packages for every country, uh, if we are reading newspaper articles of a country? Mm. or I am also not an expert. I think it's fair to say it's going to be a very interesting few decades <laughs> in terms of how text analysis is going to develop. The human touch is still still feels important to me. This is what is very important because this is what is going to keep us in the jobs. Yeah, this is we've got a real vested interest in being like, no, a computer can't do this. You need me. <laughs> I okay. So is that where because the way you are describing it, it would be like humanities research is still not using these techniques, which are you know people in computer science are using it all the time or yeah they are behind developing these dictionaries and uh, some people uh, some of my colleagues in the office like they have a supervisory team which is which has somebody from the computer science department to oh i was i was scared that you were about to say they have a human supervisor and an ai supervisor <laughs> Oh my god, robot supervisor. I know. Well, some supervisors are. <laughs> yours, though, yours sounds no. nice. <laughs> the humans. Nice to be humans. Honest, like, 
AI supervisor can have like well-being program in. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> have you been drinking enough water? <laughs> Do you know where the supermarket is? <laughs> How much sleep did you have in the last forty-eight hours? <laughs> but then I think also like this is taking it into a chat territory again. Like well-being. It cannot be codified. Yeah, no, as, you're absolutely right. <laughs> as, uh, yeah, yeah, and but, that is where human touch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel hopefully what we're going to see is like a growing synthesis in the way that humans and machines are working together to do interesting new things in research. Would so you like to be a cyborg? Well, big question, Anna. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm not going to think about it. Yes. Big robot arms so that I can just be really strong. But that's the idea of machine learning that we can, because the machine will be reading 6,000 articles, mm. we can use our time in another way. Yeah. I'm very excited to see what happens next, especially if, as Anna predicts, we end up with like social media historians and meme historians. I'm going to be a meme historian. <laughs> I'm going to be a meme archaeologist. I'm going to dig up the oldest memes. <laughs> yeah, Dust like them off. curate them in an archive. <laughs> yeah. uh, first origins. Uh. Yeah, welcome to my meme fossil collection. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the idea of an image with some words... It's so ancient, though. Mm, but there's so much more to a meme than just being an image with some words on it. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> anyway, this has gone badly off the rails. Um, no, she... I suppose this will be the core podcast. An AI supervisor is going to be very prominent in the publication of this podcast oh my god that would be so good the promotion is going to be all about the ai supervisor and what it's going to be like he's just a little robot in like an academic hat you know a what a motherboard <laughs> academic hat that's the word <laughs> anyway um, uh, it's normally less chaotic than this uh so, i'm sorry no it's not you <laughs> i think i've got quite weird energy today <laughs> we like to ask our guests if they have a funny or light-hearted story that they'd like to share with us. And that's the thing about funny things. It might not be funny for me, but... Uh, <laughs> or I might find it funny and nobody else does. So yesterday when I was going through and... Oh, I suppose it connects to our discussion of can machines understand this. Uh, so I am collecting the transcripts of parliamentary hearings and putting them in a format that the computer can analyze and break it into words and then do topic modeling or uh, do word co-occurrence networks. And as I was going through the transcript, there was one point where the chair of the committee asks, like, why did the project team leader leave the project after a few years? And with these large projects, they go on for nearly 20 years. So usually the leaders are changed after every three or four years, like in civil service or in uh, in military uh, leadership also keeps changing regularly. And uh, the response that, uh, well, from the Ministry of Defense, they were, of course, trying to give a very reasonable response of, like, he has gone on to another job and things like that. And another, minister, another MP piped in and said, uh, and, like, that's what's written in the transcript, like, he got fed up and left. This project isn't going anywhere. <laughs> so, something like that. And I was like, the machine might not pick this up as, you know, singularly 
humorous episode of you know like in a select committee hearing somebody making a joke that he got fed up and left yeah so i took a picture of that and sent it to my friends who are helping me with this the computer science bits mm. and i was like can the machine understand this and they were like no it can't so <laughs> not yet i love okay. that idea just like does the, does the robot get it the robot's like no <laughs> what's so funny about this <laughs> he left the job it's a tragedy <laughs> oh the robot understands tragedy but not comedy <laughs> oh, that's, that's a sad but, life uh, no no the, the, some weird stuff that came out of the newspaper sentiment analysis was anytime there was an article about people losing jobs because of automatic train like automatic driver operation in mm. trains and the machine coded it as positive it's <laughs> <laughs> like who is doing this yeah the machine thinks it's good cuz uh, it's like yeah more jobs for me <laughs> more jobs for robots like me <laughs> uh, so yeah that was funny thing that, that that is genuinely funny i like to that, yeah because he can't help but personify the machine, right? He can't like help but, but think of it just being like, oh, a robot got another job. Good. Uh, uh, progress. Yeah. <laughs> Oishi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really interesting to thank talk you. to you. I had a great time. And Anna, thank you for hosting. Thank you very much, Georgia. Thank you to both of you and I don't know how we close but yeah we close like this <laughs> don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast <laughs>